You're listening to Paris Talks Marketing. My goal with this podcast is to dig deeper into digital marketing success than any other marketing podcast out there, to reveal the growth marketing strategies and tactics that are working today, empowering growth at amazing companies and organizations. Keep listening as I interview founders, CEOs, and marketing leaders from all around the world, primarily from companies in the tech and software as a service industries. Now, on with the episode. Hi, everybody. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Russ Summers, who is the VP of Marketing at Trust Radius. And as the leader of the Trust Radius marketing team, Russ balances a data-driven approach with narrative instincts honed by years as a songwriter and performer. He's built the marketing engine and framework that's taken high-growth startups like TrendKite and Invodo to successful exits. And he started his marketing career with Fortune 500 companies, including Dell and Sabre Holdings. Russ spends his spare time with his family, as well as collecting guitars, writing songs, and recording. Russ, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Paris. It is great to be here. Thanks for having me. And outside of that, that very colorful intro, is there anything else that you'd like to add to introduce yourself to our audience? Uh, no, it's just, um, you know, good to be here. I think the core thing to think about is that why I'm at Trust Radius is this whole concept of truth and trust. And so that blends into, since I love to tell stories, that really blends well the stories customers tell about products and taking those to market. Yeah. One of the things that jumped out at me immediately when I, I went to connect with you on LinkedIn is your your title or your, uh, I don't know what if LinkedIn calls that, the title or your headline, which is Bringing Truth to Market as VP of Marketing at Trust Radius. What does that mean, bringing truth to market? What's interesting is that marketers, you know, there's people say sometimes that marketers lie almost as much as lawyers do, right? I mean, oh, they go, that's not the truth. That's just marketing or whatever. And the interesting thing that I've been seeing in my time here and even before is buyers are getting really, really skeptical of that, especially B2B buyers. They know, they know it's a song and dance. They know it's a demo. They know it's a lot of promises a product may or may not live up to. And so Trust Radius, we've got the opportunity here to help buyers by, by actually understanding the truth about products, by understanding what works for others like them, as well as to help vendors sell in, frankly, a more honest way and really connect with their customers in the way the customers want to. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I've, I have to ask this question, and I'm sure I'm not the first one to ask you this question. You are in a very competitive space. The big names here are Captera and G2. How do you differentiate and how are you going to beat those guys? What a good question. Obviously, you always beat people at your game, not their game, right? Uh -huh. But when we think about it, all of the sites in the space do something somewhat different. You know, Captera is very strong for lead arbitrage. You're basically buying pay-per-click leads from Captera. G2 big search presence, very diffuse audience, everything from mom and pops to large enterprises with a lot of SMB and mid-market. We differentiate based on quality and trust 
our reviews are the longest in the industry, averaging 408 words versus an average of 80 words, perhaps, for G2 or Capterra. And we have a really strong validation and vetting process behind them. So where many other sites essentially have reviews as SEO bait, which is fine, we play that game too, we have reviews that are deep enough that they're actually helpful, and that shows up in the engagement. An average a visitor to our site looking at a category page and comparing software, they spend an average of 11 minutes on that page. Some pages have time on page of 20, 30 minutes, which in the web world is just insane. And that tells me that people are actually getting value from the deep content. Mm-hmm. So there is no pay to play here, right? There's no pay to rank or pay for a priority or any sort of advantage over a competitor, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely true. We do offer services to the vendors to use that content to power conversion, to use intent data for targeting. There's a lot of great services we do offer vendors, but letting them buy a better spot is not one of them. Okay. So is is the primary monetization here the intent data that's uh, that you sell to vendors? Intent data is a big reason that people buy, but it's not just that. There's the intent data, license to use the content, tools to use the content, like dynamically sending, syndicating the exact right quote to a landing page, tools to put the content and the accounts at people's fingertips in Salesforce or even in Chrome. So there's a lot of things beyond just intent, and we do sell as an overall packaged offering. Okay, gotcha. One thing that I found interesting in my research here was that when you suggest product comparisons, so if I'm in the CRM category and I go in and search for a brand name, at some point you will say that these are popular, these are popular comparisons. For example, Pipedrive is often compared to Salesforce or to HubSpot. And I read in the description of, of um, basically of your entire philosophy and approach to, to trust is that you're using actually search data as part of that the determination of how you're going to compare products. Can you tell me a little bit about how that works? Are you actually doing um, keyword research to determine what products should be compared to others? Well, a lot of it is what is data, proprietary data from the site itself. We've got 1.2 billion, 1.2 million visitors a month. So their interactions mean a lot. And we're parsing out on the site exactly what you say, the search data, so we understand that when people run a comparison with Salesforce, maybe 60% of the time it includes Pipedrive. I'm making that up. It probably doesn't. But the point being, we're taking that actual data. So it's not a merchandising, if you like this product, you might also like this product. It is much more of an honest, true, these are the, the products that customers are comparing. And it's interesting because sometimes vendors don't agree. They'll say, that's not our competitor. And it's like, great. But the fact is buyers are comparing you to this other product. So you should consider it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. So I'd like to, to dig a little, dip, a little deeper. You mentioned 1.2 million, uh, 1.2 million a month. Is that your overall traffic? That's overall site traffic. Overall across site traffic? Five, I'm, yes. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's scaled in a relatively short period of time from a much lower number. Um, can you talk about how that happened? I mean, how you were able to grow 
the site traffic so ex- exponentially fast in, in a relatively short period? It, yeah, it's a good question. Part of it, of course, it's an emerging and nascent space, right? So traffic mm-hmm. for searches for, you know, Salesforce reviews, Marketo reviews, things like that are rising anyway, because it's how people buy now. So there's certainly a rising tide. But mm-hmm. when I started, and this was years ago when the company was younger and smaller, we didn't have a massive traffic number. We had a few hundred thousand visitors a month. And over the past couple of years, we've invested heavily in SEO. We've brought in a stellar leader for that team and built out a very powerful SEO team. And we focus very much on what actual buyers are searching for. So volume plays a part, certainly. But we also look at what search terms are actually of the most use to those buyers. And that's the traffic we're out there working every day to acquire. There's sort of a three-legged stool to make it happen of technical excellence on all our pages. So technical SEO, there is the content, the user generated and editorial content, making sure that's great content and easy for Google to crawl and see. And then the link um, generation through PR of ensuring that our name, our brand, our reviews are out there and getting tons of links back. And those gotcha. three things together are what drive it. Yep. That, that is more or less the formula for success with SEO as, as far as I understand it. Uh, a, a great, strong technical foundation that allows Google to easily crawl, access, and understand the content and um, high-quality content and, and, uh, and an ongoing development of high-quality content and freshness. And then, uh, and then the links, of course. Um, I, did, I did a bit of research, and I don't know if what I'm seeing is correct because it's a third-party tool, Ahrefs. You, you might be familiar with it. I am indeed. And I saw that over the last, well, let's say the last maybe year and three, four months, I'm looking at a period that probably starts around November of 2019, what I'm seeing is a, is a graph that looks like there was an, an amazing run-up in organic search traffic. And it peaked sometime around the, I'd say, October or November timeframe of last year, 2020. And then, and then it fell. So uh, it peaked around October and then it fell. And then, it was, and then it's been a pretty, again, a pretty steep decline. So I think there was a, a significant chunk of, of organic traffic that was handed back, I guess, Yes. Um, now this is this is simply just from um, third party a third party tool, but is that is that actually the case? Yes, you will see if you track us and competitors. There have mm-hmm. been some changes from Google algorithms, from other things. You know, we've made changes to the page templates, of course, which drove a lot of the initial growth. But if you look at what's happening in the space, a few things are happening. First off, as algo changes, such as a recent one hit, we all sort of surf and try to find our equilibrium there, us Mm -hmm. and the competitive set. And the other thing is as people more and more search for things like, again, Marketo review or whatever it might be, as people seek out reviews, some of that traffic becomes a zero-sum game between us and competitors. So it's Mm -hmm. one of those things that with SEO, you're always playing the long game. It's great when you do have a strong run-up and a a really strong surge in traffic, but you have to think over the long haul of, are we really creating value for searchers? And if you do that, you'll have some ups, you'll have some downs, but you'll in the long run come out on top. Right. And 
Is your particular approach and then the approach of the SEO team not purely traffic for the sake of traffic, but the highly engaged traffic, the traffic that has the low bounce rate and the high time on page, as you said, 11 minutes, uh, which is a phenomenal average for your um, for those product pages. Is that more of the approach? It's just to try to focus on quality of traffic a little more so than just pure volume? Exactly so, because when you think of it, quality of traffic is a proxy for quality of audience. So you can create kind of junk content around trending topics that brings people to read one blog post and click away. And some of our competitors have played with strategies like that. And it's a fine strategy for rapid traffic building. But what we really want to do, we are a buyer first site. So we want to be of use to the buyers. So if we're bringing people and they're bouncing or not engaging, that's plainly the wrong traffic. And the reason that works in our favor is Let's imagine that you are a vendor and you sell CRM software. You care less about being seen by 10,000 people that are looking just very superficially. The people mm -hmm. that are actually in market, which tends to be people that are comparing products head to head, reading reviews, things like that. That's the audience you want. So an engaged audience is much more valuable to vendors and lets us provide a lot more value to buyers. Mm-hmm. Russ, can you uh, describe to me in, in your best understanding of a typical SaaS buyer's journey? And, and I know it's going to be different by category, but uh, so some higher price categories are going, to, are going to be longer. But can you describe to me what you all imagine a, a typical SaaS journey, a SaaS buyer journey to be from the initial point of awareness of a need? That means they're, they're actually becoming an in-market you know, entering that in-market audience space to the point that they pull the trigger on something. And where does Trust Radius, where do the visits and interaction with Trust Radius normally fall in that journey? That's that's a super good question. We actually have, we have an in-house research team that's done a lot of work on this and we have a content piece. I think it's called the software buying map that's actually on the site that details everything they've found. But it starts just like you said, Paris, it starts with epiphany. Epiphany isn't I need to buy a product. Epiphany is I have a problem and there might be a way to solve it. So people go from that awareness of the problem to understanding how other people are solving that problem, which they do, of course, through searching, through talking to peers, et cetera. We always want to know what our peers are doing to solve a problem. People assemble a short list and then ultimately make a decision. But a few things are really interesting about that journey these days. One is it's very much buying as a team sport. It is very rare that it is one person. So the average buying committee is, I believe, four to five you see buying committees as large as nine or 10 and as small as two or three, but it's usually a team sport. The other thing that's changed is 60% last year of major software purchase decisions were made by millennials. So it is a new generation in control. And if we think of millennials eating avocado toast, let's remember they're now at midlife, they have kids, they have mortgages, and they're the majority of buyers now, and they make decisions differently. They care about what their peers think, they and they're very collaborative in how they work. So it's still the same process, but more people are involved, and it's more collaborative than it used to be. Mm -hmm. That that's a great insight, uh, and and the, yeah, the millennial buying mindset is is quite different. Uh, 
because I believe, you know, for most of their adult lives, they have they've always had the internet at their fingertips, and they've always they've always built their concept of trust around uh, around the community because there was always a community that was documented there for them, also at their fingertips. That's reviews and it's other things too, um, but it's that level of transparency that I guess for us in our generation, we didn't really have access to that kind of information. We would have to trust what maybe a salesperson in a store would tell us that, yeah, trust me that, you know, this is our most popular selling guitar. And, and based on what you're telling me, this is the right one for you. Um, and it's, it's so different now. I mean, we are right now delivering a webinar series about this marketing framework called the messy middle, which mm-hmm. is saying that the, and in particular for SaaS, for SaaS businesses, that the path to purchase is no longer a predictable straight line or a linear path down a funnel, but it's a convoluted mess, really. Mm-hmm. And you, so more than ever, you just have to really be there and, and omnipresent at all these possible touch points when people are going to come in because they're in control. They're going to decide how and where to toggle and jump around review sites and, and, uh, and branded pages and there's going to be paid touch points and non-paid touch points and and category non-branded keywords and branded keywords. You first of all have to be there all the time, and then there's these tactics or these ca- these so-called cognitive biases that you can use to eventually get people that are in this loop that that can be endless of exploration evaluation, where they're expanding their decision set and then they're narrowing the decision set and then they might do it again and again to pull them out of that loop with these cognitive biases. Those are things like social proof, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely relevant here, authority bias, uh, category heuristics where you can just line up side by side. I want to see feature by feature, who's got the features I care about, who doesn't, and at what price points. And even even other things that are sometimes highly emotional, like the, the power of some free offer um, or – um, or, or some some kind of implication of limited time or limited availability. This is only going to last until end of the week, or there's only five of these left. And I'm wondering of those types of uh, of these cognitive biases, which of those do you think are most powerfully represented on on trust radius, and which do you feel might be overrated? That's a really good question, and I don't know that I can hit on all of them, but several are certainly represented. Obviously, social proof. Again, as I said, buying is now a team sport, and social proof is used throughout the process. Should I even consider this product? Should I keep it on my short list? Should I take a demo with them? Social proof influences all of that. So that piece, certainly. A couple others that you mentioned are super interesting. Um, Trying to remember which ones you mentioned social proof. And then there was one right after that, trying to remember what it was. Authority bias. Authority bias. Thank you. And that's why um, if you look like on any review site and certainly on ours, you will have the profile of the person who, uh, who wrote the review. And some review sites are a hundred percent anonymous in terms of presenting that they only say, you know, marketing manager at a thousand person company in the construction industry, whenever possible, about 70% of ours, people have chosen to show their public show who they are 
in the review. And so you can see this is Susie Smith and she's CMO at Megacorp. And so that lends to authority bias. So I would see those two as being very well represented and things that Trust Radius helps a lot with. Mm-hmm. Others, I, I guess it's interesting when you say, are there any that I think are blown out of proportion or are, you know, not as impactful, almost by definition of the fact that if it's a cognitive bias, even if it's untrue, if it changes how people make decisions, we have to acknowledge that it's a real one. So I don't know that there's one I'd call out and say, there's ones we may not help with quite as much as others, but I don't know that I would say, hey, your confirmation bias is just wrong. The fact is, even if it's not a great way to think, confirmation bias influences how you think and is therefore valid. Right, right. Good point. And the studies themselves have shown that these are simply mental shortcuts. And, and mm-hmm. at some point, um, these are levers that people pull because at some point they realize, okay, I, I still need to get, <laughs> I need to go to my committee at the end of this week and make a recommendation. So at some point I've got to, I've got to make a decision and, and I need, I need a mental shortcut. Isn't it interesting how often with those things, someone else recommended it becomes that mental shortcut. Who else do you know that have done, has done this? It's just de-risking. We're considering this software platform. Who else do we know that's used it? Well, our friend Joan used it and well, did it work for Joan? She got great, great results. We know Joan probably did due diligence. So her due diligence transfers to us is kind of what happens. And that's right. how the trust is transferred. Yeah. Have you, have you heard this expression? Uh, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. <laughs> I know that one. Well, I guess it's a popular one. Yeah. Uh, I, I still think to some extent, it depends on who the decision maker is. Um, but if, you know, if the stakes are high for that decision maker, sometimes there's, there's just a job security at play even. I mean, maybe I, I don't want to go out on a limb and I, I think that this might be the best software and it's maybe it's the most innovative. It might be it might be a little less stable than the others, but they're really innovating and they're really breaking barriers. But I don't know, I might want to default a little bit on the safer option here and that's supported by by a larger number of reviews. Um, because maybe I don't want to, I don't want to get the blame if, if actually this thing that I recommend turns out to to go buggy or to crash or something. Um, well, we understand that loss aversion is more powerful than gain, right? People are more afraid of losing something than, than of gaining. That's a basic cognitive distortion. So per your point, yeah, they're de-risking it. They're saying, at least I know I haven't made a bad decision and avoidance of a bad decision is sometimes more powerful than seeking a good decision. And in your own, in Trust Radius's approach to uh, its its unbiased rankings, do you take the authority of the reviewer into account? We do. We actually have as much as we can. We don't yet have sort of page rank for reviewers, as it were. Although that would be yeah. a pretty cool thing, and it's that, a, that's, that certainly would that that certainly we've thought about. What we do, though, is we look at the channel as a proxy for that. Did this come in as a paid reviewer following an incentive? Did this come in as an organic review? Was this solicited by the vendor? And do we know that the vendor is being unbiased and reaching out to all all their buyers? That all feeds an algorithm. 
we call TR score that evaluates how trusted a given review is in terms of how much it should count for the ranking. So it's very interesting. It's pretty good at controlling out bias and gaming by the vendors. The other fun thing we launched a year ago was a program called true, which stands for transparent, responsive, unbiased, and ethical. And you can think of it as GMO free for reviews. A vendor that is certified true means they've certified with us that there's no gaming, there's no funny stuff and you can trust the review, trust them to actually be asking all their customers for reviews. Mm-hmm. That's that's great. Yeah, I mean, an unsolicited review that requires uh, that added motivation from the reviewer because they're so delighted. I think that's um, certainly worth worth more, Re- regardless of the size of company the person's coming from. Um, a great experience is a great experience. Yeah. And when somebody legitimately steps up, the other thing we've found that's counterintuitive, that's fun here, Paris, is if you think about it, a reviewer that's not driven by incentive is likely either really happy or really upset. So you get twos, threes, nines, and tens. That's one of the reasons why we do recommend using incentives and reaching out to all customers to get a balanced sample. Because what we Mm -hmm. find is you get when you do that, you get a lot more, you know, five, sixes and sevens in the middle. So you get a truer by using the right incentives and reaching out to your community the right way. You get a truer representation of actual product sentiment. Right, right. You have to you have to smooth out the middle the middle section between uh, between the outliers, I suppose. I mean, you actually have to yeah. shape that bell curve. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With with some solicited reviews. People that are, you know, pro- probably either slightly dissatisfied, slightly satisfied, and, and in the middle. But that's going to be that's going to be the volume, and you need to. I think you need to get that in to to to, to truly represent the the overall satisfaction, the bell curve. Couldn't agree more. And that also allows people to find reviewers like them because it's really interesting, the searching behavior we see because people use reviews throughout the process. But when they're down in the short list, making their final choice, they spend a lot of time looking for reviewers like them. I want to see somebody from my industry, a company about the size of mine, a title similar to mine. And that helps people feel really comfortable with the decision. Yeah. I have a personal story here because I was recently scanning a category called employee advocacy, uh, employee advocacy software. So this is mostly to help companies leverage their employees to to help them share content and and support their social media and employer branding activities. And uh, well, I I do have to admit I was on G2 and and there were so many reviews that it was just overwhelming. So I, I, I needed some way to sort that. So I just started scanning titles. And just looking for agencies, and and I would just hone in on when I saw someone that, that looked like some sort of an agency like us, and that was also a very very useful um, shortcut for for me to get a, a quick sense. Um, and now that actually segues into my next question, which is: Do you do you all have plans to include other professional services, in particular agencies? I mean, should I be thinking as an agency about trying to have a tr- a, a trust review? I trust Radius strategy in the future as I as I now have to have a G2 strategy and and a clutch strategy. 
Uh, that's not a direction we're going this quarter, but I will say that nothing is off the table over the long haul. And it's interesting, you mentioned Clutch. And, you know, right now, if I were in the position of running an agency, running a services organization, that's where I'd want to be is on Clutch. So plainly, the nice thing is you're plainly attuned enough to the market that the point that we do go there, you'll know about it and you'll be ready. Okay, great. Yeah. I, I um, usually want to, steer our clients i don't want to ask too much of them so i i, I want to try to pick a, a platform and, and make a bet on it and say all right i'm gonna at this point in time all of our all of our requests are gonna are gonna be going for this platform and uh, but but here's a stat be- that might interest you paris because we spend a lot of time uh-huh. surveying buyers and reviewers and of people that have written run, one review, um, the stat, I don't know exactly. Of people that have written one review, roughly 60% would be happy to write another one, but only half of them are ever asked. So people worry more about audience burnout than they probably need to. The fact is right. your loyal customer advocates, if they'll write one review, they're you generally happy to write another. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And that gives me a lot of hope that I can start bugging my clients again. <laughs> well, um, and what you should do with that for what it's worth is do it on an ongoing basis. It's not a one and done, number one. And number two, figure out where to embed asks. You know, software companies will often put an ask for a review on their login screen, right? So, oh, you're here to use 15.5 again. How about you write us a review? Um things like that, including it in your newsletter, including it in your email signature, instead of a few big asks, lots of little asks along the mm-hmm. way will ensure a yeah. constant stream. We, we did recently introduce an NPS survey for our clients, a monthly NPS survey. And anyone who's going to give us a seven or above, we, we then follow up and ask uh, if it's, hey, if, if, if you are happy, you know, if you, would, would you mind hanging around five more minutes and giving us a review over here. Um, but this this whole, uh, this has become such an integral strategy. Uh, my next question is really now beyond the review sites. Um, how, can, how can the content and the assets that you provide to your customers, the vendors, how should they be using that in their marketing as a whole, starting with their websites, their landing pages, maybe some case studies, but how are people taking the assets from Trust Radius that you give them and then incorporating that and sprinkling that around to their other marketing channels and campaigns? Good question. The smart ones are doing it pervasively. Mm-hmm. I would mentioned you know, the length of our reviews. The other thing that's really useful to the vendors is for a vendor customer, we can ask custom questions, specific questions designed to... Um, pull out your differentiation. So let us say, for example, that Paris, the way you differentiate is with a much higher level of service than your competitors. We can make sure that in the review flow, there's a question specifically about that. So we get lots of customers saying, I went with Paris because the products were similar, but Paris offers a much higher service level. So what that means, the reason I went down that detour for a moment is the content is tailored to help differentiate you if you do it right. So with that, um, smart customers pipe it, just like you said, to the website and landing pages. We use a widget for dynamics indication that can 
pull the specifically tailored quotes that are most likely to fit that context, whether it's on your product page or a specific landing page, you can, in your quote curation and tagging, determine what quotes you want to go to which page, what types of quotes you want on each page. And that increases conversion on landing pages. It drives conversion 20 to 30%, sometimes more pretty consistently. So very strong conversion driver there. We see salespeople and uh, marketers using it in sales decks all the time. We see our awards when people win a top rated or a tech cares or another award. That's just a fantastic opportunity for a social touch to put that in your social stream, to use that, to write about that on your blog because you've got a win to trumpet. So they use the content in all those different ways The other two things we've done is we've piped the intent data aspect of it into Salesforce so that customers can see within Salesforce when their top accounts are in market. And then we've also built out a Chrome extension so the sales team can have those quotes at their fingertips to drop into an email, to drop into a presentation. They can, without leaving their browser, just search for a quote, perhaps about ROI, bring that quote up, click to copy, paste, and drop it in. So it has a whole lot of uses, and I'm always amazed at the creative ways people use it. I've even seen it on billboards, which is really fun, along Highway 101 in California. Nice. Yeah. I imagine that a lot of this data, at least when it comes to the intent data, is really powering outbound SDR teams, sales development reps, people that are uh, using sales enablement tools like outreach and, and sales loft. Uh, can, can you talk to me a little bit about that? And, and, and in particular, I have one, one challenge, which is that, cause, cause we did this for a little while and it didn't work out too well because we couldn't identify who in the company might have been there. I mean, we did, we did get intent data and, and we were able to, uh, in most cases, map that to, to the account, to the company, <laughs> but then, it was still a needle in a haystack challenge for us. How can mm-hmm. how can SDRs overcome the needle in the haystack problem with intent with with the with the buyer intent data that you provide them? It's a good question. One thing that our intent data does that some others do not is it has quite a number of parameters behavioral. What content are the people looking at? So you can understand not just that. They viewed your profile 10 times, but here are the products they compared you to, and here are the uh, specific pages that they looked at and such. So that's one clue, because now we're in detective mode. That's telling us what they care about. Another clue, obviously, is things like geolocation. So let us say that it is you know, a hit from... Oh, give me a really big company. I'll go with Dell in Round Rock, right? Round Rock, Texas. If you know somebody from Dell is looking at you and they're in Round Rock, Texas, that's not terribly helpful. But at this point, so many companies have so many remote employees that you'll find someone at Dell in Rochester, New York, for example. And suddenly that narrows down to a smaller list. So there's that aspect of doing the detective work as a BDR, as an SDR to close it. And the other, frankly, is integration with other tools, you know, as we look at the tools that are super strong in ABM, as we look at, you know, certainly things like Sixth Sense, uh, things like Tech Target, using those tools in conjunction with our data is a pretty powerful, pretty strong play. Right, right. For, for other types of en- enrichment. Uh, yeah, but it's just, but the legitimate thing is that, 
the thing that you point out is exactly true, which is if you don't know who the person is, it's a little harder. We also all kind of have to get ready for that as GDPR and CCPA get ready to impact all of marketing. And Google asks, what is our post third party cookie strategy? The idea that we can know who people are and we know that that was Bob at Megacorp. We may have to get better and more creative as marketers in all ways as GDPR and CCPA sort of influence the way the rest of the world thinks about cookies and tracking. Yeah, absolutely. Do you find that a lot of these SDRs and BDRs are, um, are, are turning to ad platforms such as LinkedIn, where you can target a company, you can target company employees in a, in a specific location, or are there other marketing channels that seem to be working well in tandem with the, with the intent data you provide? Certainly LinkedIn is awesome for audience building, right? Because you can, and that's actually the right way to do it because yes, Mm -hmm. you can try to figure out exactly who it was and you should, but knowing that that company has an interest in you and knowing that buying is a group sport, using that intent data to build out your ad audience in LinkedIn is a super smart way to do it. I've seen other people doing creative things where they take that audience over to other platforms such as Instagram, such as Facebook, et cetera, to reach people when they're not in quite such a B2B mindset. <clears throat> but that's one of the more gotcha. interesting innovations I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. And if we were to presume that someone who is on, uh, who's on Trust Radius is, is probably in a fairly late, late stage of comparing or at least have narrowed down their decision set, especially if they're coming from a comparison, you versus competitor X. Um, is it then a smart idea to, to try to advertise to them with bottom of funnel content like case studies, um, which, which are hopefully deal closing type of assets? Um, or do you see that some of those marketers are still, do, do, do the marketing assets change when you know you've got someone presumably at the bottom of the funnel and have narrowed down their decision set to you and maybe one or two others? I think the assets do change. I mean, that's marketing 101, right, is different content throughout the buyer journey, make it stage appropriate. One thing that we see work really well, if somebody is shopping on Trust Radius for software and using us as the authority, I see smart vendors use that in their advertising. So like the ad campaign, they'll run across that that ABM list will use trust radius quotes and trust radius stars and branding just to take that third party authority, that third party trust and transfer it over. And that drives a higher response rate because that prospect is already evaluating them repeatedly on trust radius. So that branding is, and that quote is just another trust cue to get them to interact and engage with that ad. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating and a great idea. It almost in a sense, kind of sounds like a co-branded remarketing in a way. It very much is. And it's actually something when I was a customer prior to working at Trust Radius, I used when I was at TrendKite, we advertised to customers coming up towards renewals. We used uh, Terminus and ABM platform to target them. And we would, we knew what product they had switched from. And so we would use competitive quotes that reminded them of that differentiation. So mm-hmm. quotes, I chose Trendkite over Meltwater because we'd use quotes focusing on those thing in those ABM campaigns. And that was proven to have a very substantial positive impact on retention. Mm-hmm. 
Great, great. Um, well, is there anything, Russ, that I that I haven't asked you that that you wished I would have asked you, or is there anything anything remaining that you'd like to our audience to know? I've just I've enjoyed the conversation. The core is it's a whole new buyer. We can have the cliche about COVID accelerated digital change, and it did. The buyer's mm -hmm. journey went from 67% digital to 100% digital. But even without that, it's a whole new buyer. It's the millennial buyer. It's buying as a team sport. And so you've got to think about what people need and give them what they need to buy. Yeah. And before we wrap up, I, I really would love to know a little bit more about your passion for music and and the the songwriter and the narrative, um, your your love of of songwriting and narratives. Um, can you tell me a little bit about about that side of your life? Yeah, I just I mean I started playing in bands when I was very young, and you know started acquiring guitars. You can see I have a handful, and writing songs. I've done everything from sort of rock bands to solo acoustic singer songwriter. There's something, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but a songwriter named Slade Cleave said this, and I loved it. The reason he loves songs for narratives is they're like whiskey. There's not room for anything extraneous. It's a story distilled down to its most potent form because you have to get it in, you know, in three verses and choruses, right? Mm -hmm. So. That piece of it, I think, is why it appeals to me, because all marketers are storytellers, and it's just an efficient way to tell a story. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, I think that's a, that is a fantastic analogy and a great, a great way to wrap this up. Russ, it's been a really uh, fantastic pleasure here. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank Very you for mutual. spending the time with me. Thank you, Paris. Another great episode in the books hope you enjoyed it. If you want to get notified when future episodes drop, be sure to subscribe to Paris Talks Marketing on your favorite podcast player. And to learn more about SaaS growth marketing, visit hop.online. That's hop, H-O-P, dot online. Have a great day.